Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Exponential Minds podcast. I'm Nicholas Badminton, a futurist based up in Canada. Uh, I, I speak all over the world uh, to, to various audiences on the future of a number of different industries and topics. And uh, today I'm really excited to speak with Bronwyn Williams, who's a futurist economist and trend analyst based out of Johannesburg, South Africa. She's also a regular media commentator on future socioeconomic trends. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now, Bronwyn, and um, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we've, we, we, we've got an illustrious uh, people who we've spoken to before this. And uh, I, I think that adding you to that roster and really getting into some of these conversations is fascinating. I've been following you online. You're very active, you know, through the Twitterverse uh, and really engaging and sharing information, but really getting into some pretty interesting conversations. So can you just give me a, a, a background of what you do at Flux Trends and, and the kinds of subjects that you talk about? Yeah, so at Flux Trends, we look very much at the sort of socioeconomic trends, and it's more in the trend space and the future space. I'm associated with two organizations. Flux trends on the trend side, and then also future world, which does much more strategic foresight at a much higher level. That's more of sort of the corporate strategic change programs that we're involved with there. But the two sides of my work do tie together very nicely because obviously you need trends and trajectories to plug into any sort of forecast if you want to make sense of the world. We're, we're right at the beginning of 2020 here, and there's, there's lots of discussions about everything from like climate change to the future of work to, you know, transportation. You know, obviously, let's throw in some artificial intelligence and sensors and big data and analytics and whatever. But you, you've been talking a lot uh, over the past few years about, you know, transhumanism, which is a favorite subject of ours on, on the podcast here, and the implications for the future of work and societal equality. How do you how do you look at how we're sort of starting to step into this world of, you know, man and machine and transhumanism and its effects on society? Well, as always, when it comes to technology, I'm quite a tech op optimist, but I also tend to be quite a human pessimist. And that's the general problem with any technology, any sort of new technology or any new developments in human psyche, human society, human technology, all of that. It has dangers as well as benefits. And it all comes down to the people that are wielding these technologies and these new superpowers, which is really what they are, rather than the powers themselves that should be demonized for being bad or being wrong. So I, I get very uncomfortable with conversations with people who work in the future space and say technology is bad, it should be shut down, technology is not neutral. It really is. It really comes down to who is using it, why they're using it, and is it a good idea to have that sort of technological power concentrated in a few hands? So a lot of the ways that I look at the world, whether I'm looking at technology or whether I'm looking at politics or economics, I like to look at power dynamics and also like to look at incentives. So what are the incentives being set up and what are the potential problems that can come out of that? So by incentives, when we're talk, talking about something like, say, transhumanism, one of the big incentives we look at is something like whether those processes, those 
technologies, whether they're biological or hardware-based, are legal in certain territories or illegal in certain territories. And what then incentives come about for both individuals and organizations and governments to game those systems and to play around by and through the various rules that we develop. So that's sort of one lens that we can look at these sort of developments through. Another lens that I like to look at transhumanism and the future of work in particular is the lens of equality dynamics. Because as quite a macro futurist, the work I do does tend to be very sort of top down. And one of the very big macro trends at the moment is this whole concept of how inequality is driving social unrest across the world. But to date, the conversation around equality has very much been framed around economic inequality, which is perhaps slightly short-sighted. This, this to me is almost like a democratic access to all the technology. Like, hey, we've invented this amazing thing. This amazing thing provides benefits A, B, and C. But only the people that have got the money can, can, buy, into the, can buy into the system. It's, it's a little bit like uh, you know, psycho, psychologists and, and therapy and counseling. You know, if you're on the breadline, you're not going to be spending $150, $200 or whatever per session. And then if, if there's not the government support, you're literally, your mental health is at, at risk in that situation. So that's social unrest. Are you sort of saying that, you know, we've got this, this uh, you know, technology is neutral, but if I can afford it and you can't, then that inequality is that I'm suddenly a level up in terms of humanity and human ability than you are. Absolutely. It's a very uncomfortable conversation to have. Because even we just stick with the conversations we're having today globally around economic inequality and the 1% and the fact that the eight richest billionaires in the world own as much wealth as the bottom 50% of humanity. Those are ugly conversations. And we see the ugly reality in the world around us, which creates huge social unrest, huge political divide. It doesn't do anything to help find that middle ground, which we're so sorely lacking at the moment. And now you layer on something as powerful as transhumanism, which is very, very powerful. And you can't really stress that point enough. It's the ability to direct our future evolution. It's the difference between running through the natural lottery, which could hand you a really bad hand of cards, or perhaps sometimes in the natural lottery of natural selection and evolution to date, some people did win. Some people did end up with a better hand of cards. But a lot of people, the majority, in fact, didn't. Now you add on something like transhumanism, which is self-directed or government-directed, if you start looking at some of your more sort of totalitarian countries that are sort of driving some of these transhumanist processes. And you find yourself in a very different space because not only is there inequality with access due to financial reasons, that primary sort of lens of inequality that we look around, but it's also lack of inequality or an inequality with regards to access to the technological know-how. So if you're coming from a poorer country with a worse off education system, you don't know what you don't know, but yet you're still competing with people that have financial and technological access to these treatments that can make you better, faster, stronger, live longer, have superior children, which is also a very uncomfortable way to frame this conversation, but that's what it really is when you start getting a bit further down the line. And layer on to that, yet another layer of inequality, and that's the inequality of legal access to these processes. So when you start getting to the whole sort of human embryo editing space of transhumanism, where the really rapid developments and inequalities in actual physio physiological side of humanity can accelerate very, very fast, 
countries that ban those processes or legislate them more strongly and citizens that live in those countries have a inequality compared to countries that are proactively pushing for these sort of technologies to be experimented upon within their populations. And uh, from, a, from a longer term perspective, as a futurist, you try and look a bit more than sort of five minutes ahead, you want to look maybe 50, 500 years down the line. Mm. And you can imagine a, a case where one country legalizes the ability to genetically edit human embryos for superior intelligence, for superior good looks, for superior health and longevity. Another country is perhaps lagged behind in legalizing those processes. And within a few generations, you're getting sort of exponential change in leaps and bounds in the territories that are investing actively in these technologies and these processes compared to markets that are not, either because of moral reasons that are preventing them from investing in the technologies or because of physical barriers, things like lack of economic access to those technologies or lack of know-how of how to actually use those technologies to develop their populations. So of course, these inequalities lie at an individual level between richer and poorer within a particular community, but the bigger divide really comes from a national level when you start seeing certain entire nations putting directed policies and processes into the furthering the superiority of their future race. And as right. I said, that's a very uncomfortable conversation because we start getting into the territory of Nazi eugenics and all those things that we sort of said we weren't going to do. But the civilized society said we're not going to touch that. We're not going to try and engineer humanity to get rid of certain disabilities like, say, deafness or shortness. These are all things that we could start to sort of tailor out of certain population groups if we decide to pursue those policies. And the other issue that comes with that is it's not just an individual choice, it's also a community choice. Even if just one community decides to push ahead with the extremes of the transhumanist project, the rest of the world is playing that same game, even if they try not to. It's a case of once the genie's out of this particular bottle, you simply can't put it back. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm not sure if you're watching what was happening in Davos, but I was watching... Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, obviously a great thinker, yes. author of Sapiens and a number of other, uh, other books, um, pretty intense uh, reading and, and, and subject matter. But he was, he was sort of talking about, you know, we, we're in a world where, you know, there's biological control, you know, computer science, you know, data collection, exploitation, and that leads us to a, a level of exposure as humans. But really, you know, biology computer systems and data that that's sort of the that that's the foundation of transhumanism in a way and it makes me think when i look to china and the social credit system it seems to be it's not it's not directly devices per se but they're devices on the streets that might be facial recognition and controlling behavior and suddenly credit scores and that behavioral modification gets really interesting but what yuval Noah harari was talking about was what if you're in a you know, dictatorship like, like North Korea. And what if everyone was to wear an, a, you know, a wristwatch or a, a wristband, or even ha have like some kind of powered chip that collects information and, and, and monitors who you are in some, in some future. And suddenly you have the, the leader on the screen and, and you might be standing up and, and applauding and trying to play the system as it were, as a, as a loyal follower of the leader. But your, your heartbeat, uh, your blood pressure, 
a number of different things are betraying your emotions and suddenly you end up in a gulag the next day, right? Um, so it, it's interesting where we talk about this in terms of, you know, democratic access doesn't actually mean true democracy anyway, because suddenly the business model, platform, tech know-how, but like the governmental application of the technology can change everything, right? Absolutely. It all comes down to those power dynamics. Who's in control of the systems? Who gets to limit access? Is it being limited because of financial reasons, which is why we have a lack of access to a lot of good things in life today? Was it lack of access for other reasons? The lack of access, say, because of patents. I mean, what could happen with a lot of these transhumanist technologies? It could be very beneficial because we mustn't talk only about the scaremongering side of it. Like Yuval Harari does tend to err on the side of pessimism, I would say, yeah. in this particular space. Like Douglas Rushkoff was obviously guilty of that too. On that other side of the coin, you've got great thinkers like David Pierce who talk right. about how we should be using these technologies to make people as happy and healthy as possible, and we shouldn't be limiting that. Um, my question would be, it comes back to the, the basic thing that all futures scrapple with. The future is already here for a lot of us, but it's not equally distributed. Yeah. And the danger of these technologies in particular is how fast that gap between the haves and have-nots can grow. So economic inequality grows fast enough, but it only grows as fast as really the economy grows, or as fast as our governments print money and put more money into the system to make rich people richer and poorer poorer. You know, like that, that's the, sort of the way it works. But with these sort of technologies, you can have that divide happening to such an extent that you actually can't keep up. Not only in terms of transhumanism and the cognitive development space, we're still quite new to that technology, but we already know those first CRISPR kids that were born last year have indications that their intellect was increased. So if you sort of extrapolate that trend a few generations down the line, if those genetically intelligently enhanced twins have then also the opportunity to genetically intelligently enhance their offspring, then a couple of generations, their offspring is so much smarter than someone who hasn't had access to that, you suddenly have this awful situation where for the first time in history, differences between nations or races, even if you want to put more finer point on this, become real. So at the moment, when we talk about serious things like racism, racism is a fallacy. We all are the same. We have the same intellectual ability, the same physical abilities, all that differs really is the color of our skin and where we grew up. So it's contextual and it's not, it's not actually intellectual differences between different races and population groups. But when population groups specifically start engineering superior traits into their future generations, suddenly you have a different sort of racism that can come about that could completely destabilize the human race. And that's why equality of access to these processes, not just among first world rich nations, not excluding third world poorer nations, is imperative today. Not within three years time, not within 30 years time. In 30 years time, it's too late. The gap becomes so wide, it becomes almost insurmountable. And that's where Yuval Harari is probably right when he starts talking about things like the bifurcation of the human race, the difference between naturally selected human beings accelerating away from those intelligently designed human beings. And I'm talking here particularly around the sort of genetic editing side of of transhumanism but of course you can layer in things like cyborg attachments to that too because obviously if you can enhance your intellectual capabilities in hardware and you do that you give yourself an advantage over people that can't 
And that for me is probably the biggest issue that it's not an easy thing to talk about. It's not a comfortable conversation to have, not in a world where inequality and racism already here and we're trying to eradicate them by saying that the only thing that differs between people really is access to opportunity but yeah. when there are literal differences engineered into certain groups deliberately by certain political leaders who are making choices to engineer a superior race suddenly if you, you can start to think as someone that, like myself looks back at history and forward to the future too imagine if someone like hitler had had access to this technology when he was going about his process and that's the sort of thing we need to mitigate against. And the only way to do that is by distributing the information and technology around this space as broadly as possible, as quickly as possible. And it's not something we can afford to fall back on or to sit out even for one or two rounds. I, I think we often forget a dimension to this as well. Like we can create generations of super smart kids or super strong kids or tall kids and, or kids that don't lose their hair in like, you know, the middle of their life, you know, uh, these sort of, these amazing sort of like fabric of, of humanity. And we end up, you know, creating people where, you know, we, we, we gain the whole Darwinian theory, survival of the fittest, right? But the, the psychological, mm, the psychological, aspect of, of this is incredibly important. I mean, we can have these, and, and I've done a lot of work personally, you know, in terms of, of using neuro-linguistic processing and, and ways to adjust the mind based on previous experience, trauma, epigenetic memory from my parents and their parents. I mean, my parents were born um, just at the end of the Second World War, so their first uh, five, six years was in, in a society based on rations. So they've got a particular mindset based on scarcity and, 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 and money. And, and their parents had been through the First World War, which had got a level of trauma as well. Um, so there's almost a part of we're, we're missing because we're talking about business models and platforms, technology, democratic, uh, democratic access. But we're not talking about democratic access to psychological health in the situation as well, right? Yes, that, that resilience, that's a very, very good point. And even in terms of epigenetics, we talk about things like trauma, lack of access to food, even a few years, leaving in a genetic imprint that can carry through to your descendants in terms of sort of biological health and all the rest of it. So absolutely that mental resilience space falls in here so much. And that's also probably another concern when it comes to intelligent design of the human race. The other question is, what are we actually optimizing for? Are we going to optimize for good looks, which would be yeah. very superficial, but actually very beneficial? If you read the studies, you know, being good looking is probably one of the biggest benefits you can get if you want to get ahead in life. So right. quite an easy way to give your offspring and, and a head up if you marry someone good looking, have good looking children, gently engineer them as much as possible to be tall, beautiful, etc. But are we optimizing then, are we choosing to optimize the wrong things? Why do we not then optimize for happiness or optimize for mental resilience? Right. And I think given the choice, a lot of people would, would go for the easy one, you know, like it's, you could, you could, you can be pretty sure your kid's going to have a decent life if they're good looking and intelligent and strong, you know, so you sort of think about those things first. And that would be a mistake, absolutely, if we're not using all the tools we have available to improve the things that matter most, which at the end of the day is happiness. So that comes back to David Pierce's philosophy about how we should be maximizing for happiness. And that includes, of course, mental resilience. That includes just a general appreciation for life as a whole. And, yeah. and that, that can bring you into a much, a much more richer conversation, but also means you need more voices at the table. 
because if people are making these sort of optimization decisions about their own bodies and their offspring's bodies on their own, you're probably going to make choices that won't necessarily reflect, say, group values. And there's always that balance between individual and the collective. But I think the more conversations we have around this, the more people start engaging with these ideas, the more we can start to turn this from something being very scary about a future sort of societal breakdown because of inequality to a much more constructive conversation to say, hey, guys, where are we going? Yeah, what are we not going to do? What are we going to do? And what should we be doing? Not just what can we do, what should we do? We're almost, uh, we're, we're kind of at that, that stage of what I think is like roulette transhumanism, right? We haven't done a lot of CRISPR in humans, for example, or even in the animal no. kingdom. You know, we've kind of done a lot in plants, and that's where CRISPR-Cas9 sort of uh, sort of sprung up from in like the late mm. 80s. Um, and, and then, you know, these technologies where we tend to be, tend to be in a massive social experiment where suddenly, you know, McLuhan uh, said like, you know, we, we create the tools and then the, the tools become us in a way, right? And we can see that with social and networks and, and, and you know, the, the, the art of being a human in the modern world is this, this face of, of being beautiful and amazing and, you know, YouTubers and Instagram influencers or TikTok sort of uh, superstars, right? And, and suddenly underneath there's fragility and there's humanity and it, it's, it's almost like, like we need governments to have ministers that are truly focused on the resiliency of the humanity that lives within their, their, their borders, right? And, uh, and to try and... Yeah. That. Um, what, what I want to do at this stage of the conversation is like, I, I love this conversation, transhumanism and equality and access and, and, and platform. But obviously, the benefit of this conversation we're having is that you're, you're based down in Johannesburg in South Africa. Africa is, is often lauded as that continent that's like, I, I think it, it's, it's one of the most exciting places that you can be. I, I spent some time in Morocco last year. I haven't been um, to yeah. other parts of Africa yet, but I will make it there. But if you look to, you know, the growth of the continent, it, it's going to be incredible. I mean, they're saying by 2100, Lagos, Nigeria will be like 88 million people. That's a, that's a sea of humanity. People are moving from urban areas into, into cities. How does thinking about, you know, transhumanism, but I think technology in a, in a wider aspect and communications and, you know, technology that enables uh, transportation and energy, how is that um, changing uh, how people in Africa are thinking about their future? Well, for me, the Africa question is, it's, it comes with the, with, the, with the pros and cons. Africa is packed full of opportunity, but there are very real problems here. So if you look at like our world and data and sites like that, you'll see quite clearly that things like poverty are declining dramatically everywhere in the world, except for in sub-Saharan Africa, where it's actually increasing. Wow. And this is at a time where, as you say, by mid-century, one in four people in the world is going to be African. By the end of the century, one in three people in the world is going to be African. And that means one in four people is going to be stuck in a place in the world that is not improving when everyone else is improving. And that is the, that is the big single challenge of really my lifetime as someone that lives in Africa. We've only got really 30 years to buck that trend before our sort of demographic dividend kicks in. That's the time when our working age population is bigger than our dependent population as people under the age of 16 or over the age of 65. 
And that's such a short period of time to, to reverse that trend. And that's imperative because otherwise what happens is Africa gets locked into another generational, multi-generational cycle of the poverty trap. Because if your working age population isn't working, there's really not much you can do to dig yourself out of that hole. That is required in order to build your economy, to build hospitals, to build schools, to get access to technology and everything else that goes with it. And a lot of this is not Africa's fault. Yes, there are problems with, with leaders across the continent that are not doing a particularly good or ethical job that might even just be flat out criminals. But then again, what's, what's so different than some places across the world? But a lot, of the, a lot of the issue is that Africa's found itself in an unlucky time because Africa's demographic dividend is kicking in at a time when globalization is reversing. And you compare that to some place like India and China, who were lucky enough to have their demographic dividend window of opportunity kick in at a time when globalization was on the up. They both came into that, that genetic population sort of lottery, that awesome time where you've got this large working population at a time when the global economy was booming post the two world wars. And that's, that's really unfortunate. And Africa's not responsible for that sort of glitch in history or just like the luck of the draw with the, with the overall timeline of humanity. But when, you, when it comes to things like technology and it comes to things like being future focused, it becomes almost an impossible burden for African leaders who are having to deal with immediate crises, crises of things like not having access to healthy, crises of abject poverty, which just is actually increasing in the region and dealing with things like conflicts and protests. In South Africa, we have a protest almost every day. And by protest, we don't mean people walking through the streets with signs, we mean like violent riots. These are immediate crises that have to be dealt with. And when you're dealing with immediate crises, you don't have the luxury of planning ahead. Although planning ahead and using foresight and looking to the far future is always the most important. When your urgent issues are too urgent and pressing, you don't have that luxury to plan ahead. So what we really require in Africa at the moment for technology to actually be able to help us to leapfrog more into, into the future, to use technology to not make the same slow steps and the, and the mistakes that the developed world has made in order to get to a post-industrialized society and into the knowledge economy. We can learn from those mistakes. We can only do that if we've got leadership that is putting the right structures in place to encourage that technological development rather than perhaps you know, putting their, their hands into the cookie jars and perhaps taking what should be rather invested into the future. And, and, and that's, really, that's really the big challenge, the big problem with Africa. I don't have answers for all of this at the moment, but there are starting to be encouraging signs. So you've got these tech hubs that are developing in Cape Town, the Silicon Cape as they call it, and yeah. in the Silicon Savannah up in Kenya. I've been, I've been up there a few times in the last few months. And there are exciting things that are happening, but there's also very big challenges. And this whole idea that Africa must just pull itself up by its bootstraps and you know, just like just adopt technology and run off with it you have to lay a whole lot of groundwork first. And that brings me to the other challenge because the challenge for Africa to start using technology in a way that actually reverses that poverty trend means that you have to have ubiquitous access to cheap internet. So in South Africa, where I live, our data costs are very, very high. This obviously limits the potential good impact that technology could have from an educational perspective. Because, you know, if you've got access to the internet, you've got access to free education, some of the best lectures in the world. You can listen to the Benman lectures at home on your couch if you've got access to cheap data, if you're able to, to actually log on to that internet. You're also able to start 
creating businesses that can drive yourself and your family out of poverty. But in order to do that, as I said, you have to have that access to cheap internet. So then comes the next double-edged sword, because the sort of people that are offering people free access or cheap access to data and to the internet are generally international companies that are then monetizing African data to sell products to Africans and then extract more money out of the continent. Right. So that becomes the next challenge. You know, so if a company like a Google or a Tencent or an Alibaba comes in and puts the 5G network in, that's great. Everyone's got access to the internet. That cash is then still leaving the continent. And, and that whole issue of cash leaving the continent and not staying in the continent is something that a lot of economists that I deal with are grappling with. We have to find a way to retain capital investment within Africa because Africa has been pillaged since the earliest days of colonization. People came and took the mineral wealth out of the country. Now you're finding migration trends where people will come and take the best and brightest Africans and put them into places like America and, and Europe. And that's fantastic for the few, but it means that the majority is still left behind with even less chance of, of getting out of that cycle. So what I'd like to really see more of in Africa is more investment in Africa that's going to stay in Africa, not investment that's going to stay in Africa until it turns into a unicorn and a Silicon Valley VC sort of extracts that cash off continent. And there are people working on this. There's, there's some very exciting people down in Cape Town are working on alternative financing models to get startups in the tech space invested in without having to lock them into debt to international creditors, for example. So those are just some of the sort of bigger pictures that we're looking at here. It's absolutely fascinating. Every time I've worked with, with, with Africans, the intellect, drive, and passion is equal to anyone else in the world. In fact, you know, some of the most crazy smart people I know in the world are you know, a, a Nigerian, a Ghanaian, or Kenyan. And it, like, I work with a bunch, and, and it's incredible. And, uh, you know, and they, they're building capability at home in Africa and in North America and in the UK when I, when I was living there as well. And I think that it's really interesting as we watch Africa. I mean, was it the median age in Africa is about 18 years old, they're saying right now. So we've yeah. got... Uh, and the, and the working is quite, quite young. I think it's, like it's more like 16, 17, but definitely oh, wow. under, under 20. So, yeah. we've, got, we've, so got, we've, got, we've got like a youth bulge, but like a pre-working age youth bulge, like a lot of teenagers. Right. So if we get education right, if we, if, we, if we can really bring them up to speed, like in terms of where they are, and, you know, Africa can, can be part of that, you know, idea of the, the, the global superpowers. And instead of being splintered, um, you know, coming together. And I know that there's lots of nominal organizations that bring African countries together and whatever. But as you say, that there's, there's challenges and conflicts. But OK, so where would you like to see Africa um, in the year 2100, what do you think this, this like a positive uh, Africa would look like in, in that situation? I would like to see an Africa built for Africans and by Africans. So by this, I mean that a lot of, I say probably too many companies that come to either come to Africa to make their fortune and send it back home, as I said, or Africans that have the idea of cashing out, getting rich for themselves and cashing out. Now right. that's not, of course, everyone wants to do that, but that's, that's, a, that's also the story that you're being told a lot when you go to sort of like VC meetings or involved in the startup scene. Everyone's trying to tell you how, to, how, how do you sort of financialize yourself so that you can also get that, win that sort of startup jackpot. And I think that's the conversation that needs to shift to say, how do we stop building, or, or why are we focusing on building the next African unicorn? Why are we not focusing on building the next African, say, Coca-Cola 
you know, a, a legacy business. Maybe Coke's not the best example because of all the sugar they put in their drinks, etc. Yeah. <laughs> how do we how do we build the infrastructure and keep the assets on the continent? So we speak quite a lot of it here in South Africa about this idea of African industrialists. And the term has been bandied about quite a bit, but it's a, it's a powerful idea. The idea that we should be investing in our own infrastructure and finding ways to build our own economy using our own people. Because people are the world's primary resource at the end of the day. I mean, this is why we all, yeah, this is why we all in business. This is why we all have enjoy and enjoy life. It's with each other. We are social animals. That's what, that's what humans are. So how do we build an Africa sustainable economy? And that's going to require richer countries like my own South African country being more generous and more sharing with the countries that are perhaps less developed. Because that is a crying shame in South Africa. There's a lot of xenophobia in the country that I'm in. We're not necessarily very welcoming of immigrants or doing trade with our neighboring countries, which is an absolute tragedy. And how do, we, how do we sort of break out of that vicious cycle and start investing in industries that we can trade among ourselves? So what we need to really build here in Africa is an African knowledge economy, but a knowledge economy for Africans, not a knowledge economy as a service provided to European or American or Canadian or Australian multinationals. And that's going to require a new breed of entrepreneurs who's thinking not how do I get really, really rich in 10 years' time, it's going to be totally awesome for me, but rather... How do I build something that's going to leave a legacy that will last longer than I will? And Africans are actually very good at that. We are. We're, we're a storytelling continent, which is fantastic. But what's happened is we've lost touch with a lot of our long-term, long-now stories, the stories that go back into our past, take the best of the past with us, learn from the past, leave the worst mistakes of the past behind, and then carry them forward into far-reaching future stories. And those stories tend to get broken down, according to sociologists, in times of social crisis when people are focused on day-to-day -day issues. So it comes back to the point that in the next 30 years, the challenge for African leaders is to fix the basics, the basics being healthcare and education, and perhaps trying a new sort of education on this continent, particularly because the education is so bad in certain places, like the country that I come from, South Africa, once again, we've got some of the, the worst educational outcomes in the world, despite the fact that we spend more than proportional amounts of our budget on education compared to comparable countries across the world. Right. Maybe we should be looking at ways to leapfrog educational development. The same way Africa has really led development in fintech. But hopefully this time, if we are able to leapfrog edtech, we're not doing it for the benefit of multinational companies. Because that's, of course, the tragedy. So when you look at the African fintech story, I mean, we've got so many cool examples, like the whole MPESA thing and our mobile payments came out of Africa. The mobile payments facilitated trade in Africa, but the people behind that technology, the companies that really profited from it, weren't actually African-backed companies. Once again, it was your giant boat worlds across the, yeah. the pond and all the rest of it. But really, really the financial um, rewards, the mega rewards of that, the big, the big profits. So if there's a way for us to leapfrog edtech, that would be absolutely fantastic. And there's definitely a gap there. There are ways we can do this differently. There's no reason in my mind that children have to sit in rows in front of a school teacher and you know, regurgitate information for 12 years of their lives. That's not what learning is about anymore. It's about learning how to learn. It's not about learning information yeah. pro rata, which is what we're still doing here. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I was at a conference in Toronto last year, a collision conference, and there were people from M-Pesa and talking about different things. And there's some African entrepreneurs there. And one of them actually is Akon, right? The, the, the musician, uh, Senegalese. Yeah. And he's building like cryptocurrency and blockchain-based cities and all sorts of crazy stuff. It, I, I think Africa is hugely exciting. When I went to Morocco, it's clear okay. this, is, this is an ancient, you know, you go, to, you go to Marrakesh, it's an ancient city operating in old ways. But you can see where technology is starting to really have an impact and solar and, and all of this, all of this thing. But we're coming to the end of our, our, our conversation. I, you know, I think we should do a, a number of these talking about a number of different subjects. I love talking about Africa as well. I think that it, it is that new frontier. I think that people that I work with and, and that are saying, oh, we want to you know, look at Africa. We want to look at Indonesia and other places. You have to be part of the country. You have to be the country in a way. You can't just suddenly suck, suck that money or that goodness or the best talent into, into a different part of the world where your headquarters are because that, that's not really doing the job that's needed. Uh, and you can, you can say that about any country around the world. You just like build, build these, you know, these, these, these hub and spoke initiatives where you've got empowerment around the world rather than centralization which is like the silicon valley business model as well right and i guess you're going to see that potentially in different parts of africa you know sucking talent out of different countries and whatever but this this long view this ability to build a knowledge economy this generosity um can really be pushed forward by good great thinkers like yourself um the the governmental leaders uh, organizations like the United Nations basically really uh, forcing people to come together and think. And I think that it's a hugely interesting world. Um, you know, transhumanism and equality, the future of Africa, and that long view. I, I think that this has been a fantastic conversation. I mean, it's, it's just over 30 minutes, and I think that we could have, we can talk about this for hours. But Bronwyn, I'd like to say thank you very much for joining me. And, and where can we find out more information on, you know, what you're thinking and what you're talking about and whatever? Well, my personal website is whatthefuturenow.com, but otherwise take a look at Flex Trends, some of the trends coming out of Africa that we're tracking at the moment. It's always a great source of just general information. And if you're interested in looking, looking a bit further ahead, more strategic planning from an African lens, then take a look at Future Worlds. So those are the different hats that I wear at the moment. Thanks so much for having me. And hopefully we'll find a way to tie Africa's very rich past history, its people, its stories together into the future story of humanity, wherever that takes us, whatever path transhumanism ends up landing us on. Because that's all I know for sure. Humans as we know ourselves today are probably not going to be around forever, just like we weren't in the past. <laughs> and on that, I'd like to say thank you very much, Bron Williams, and uh, look out for the next episode of Exponential Minds. Thank you.